This is an ABC podcast. Has this ever happened to you? You show up at the club, your mates get in before you and you're about to follow, but then the secchi says, nah, not because you're pissed or because of your clothes, it's because of your tattoos. Hey, it's Dave Marchese with you for Hack, and soon you're going to hear from a woman who has refused entry to a Brisbane nightclub because of her cultural tattoos. We're going to find out what that's all about. First, though, gay conversion therapies. Hack. We weren't allowed to use the word gay to identify ourselves. On Triple J. Exorcisms, deliverance, demons. Maybe you hear that and you think, wow, a hectic scene out of a horror movie. But for some of you in the LGBTQIA community, it's not entertainment. It's been a horrible and traumatic part of your life. Conversion practices do not work. And in some cases, they're compared with torture. And even though they've been banned in a few states and territories, they're not illegal in every part of Australia. If you've been through this, let me know. Call in 1300-0555-36. You can message in as well. In a minute, you're going to hear from the United Nations global expert on this. But first, April McLennan has the story. And hey, if you might find this triggering, you can switch off for 10 minutes. I overheard uh, my dad talking to one of his friends at church, so two adults in the church, and they were saying that a gay person had come in off the street and asked for healing prayer because they were homosexual and that while they were being prayed over that seven homosexual demons came out of that man. Of course, as a kid, I overheard that and thought, oh my gosh, maybe I've got demons in me. I want you to meet Chris Chabs. He was about 16 when he started going through conversion practices. Basically, he was trying to pray the gay away, but it can also be done through counseling and even hypnosis. And this whole practice is based on the false idea that someone's sexual orientation or gender identity can be changed. So I became very withdrawn, very um, suffered like depression. And I remember just praying every day that God would either heal me or kill me because I knew that I wasn't going to be able to, I guess, continue living life the way that I was. Chris was desperate to be straight. So he went through different forms of these practices in New South Wales, Tassie and the ACT. But obviously it didn't work. Chris is still gay. Because like I said earlier, you can't actually change someone's sexual orientation or gender identity. As someone who did travel interstate in order to participate in sort of different practices associated with the conversion movement, I do worry about states that seem to be sort of lagging behind with commitment to banning conversion practices. Queensland, Victoria and the ACT have now banned the practice and South Australia, Western Australia and Tassie have promised to. Equality Tasmania's Dr Lucy Mercer-Mapston reckons the federal government has a role to play too. In terms of making sure the LGBTQI plus community is safe and they can play a role in making sure there's national consistency across states, that people aren't sent overseas for conversion practices and that, for example, smaller states have the support they need to follow up legislation with funded educational efforts to increase awareness of the laws and how to, how to implement them. Last month, the Tasmanian Law Reform Institute released a report recommending the island state prohibit the practice and Premier Jeremy Rockcliffe backed the ban. 
but the government's yet to actually start that process. There's a chance that the states who haven't um, made conversion practices illegal will become havens for people being sent to undergo conversion practices and time is of the essence in terms of making sure that consistently across states these cruel and ineffective practices have legislation in place to ban them to protect our communities. Not everyone's on the same page though. In a statement, Hobart Archbishop Julian Portis expressed grave concerns about the proposed changes. Such a change in the law would have widespread negative consequences for freedom of speech and freedom of religion in our society, but even more importantly would cause harm to the vulnerable seeking help from parents or others. The Catholic Church in Tassie is also worried banning the practice could stop medical professionals from treating people suffering gender dysphoria. But the Australian Medical Association's Dr Annette Barrett says changes to the state's laws wouldn't actually prevent doctors from doing their job. People need to be able to come forward to seek medical assistance, to be able to express their concerns, to be able to express who they see themselves as being and who they love without judgement, without criticism and in an open frame of mind. And to be subjected to, in many cases, coercive therapy or being made to feel ashamed of who they are and who they want to be is something that should not be happening in a modern society. April McLennan Hi. there. On Triple J. And if this story has raised any issues for you, remember there's always someone to speak with at Lifeline. They're on 13 11 14. We're getting some messages. Emily says, I was raised religious and have a bunch of queer friends through church circles who've been subjected to conversion practices. It's so damaging to a person's psyche and not just the therapy itself, but the culture that makes queer people feel like they need the therapy because they're broken or sick. Look, let's zoom out on this a bit now. And as you might know, next year, Sydney's hosting World Pride, which is huge. Triple J stoked to be the host radio broadcaster for that. And one of the special guests at World Pride will be Victor Madrigal Borlos. He's the United Nations independent expert on sexual orientation and gender identity. So he's a big wig at the UN and he's going to be speaking at a human rights conference. And we're very lucky to have him with us now. Victor Madrigal Borlos, thanks for coming on Hack. Thank you very much for having me. It's very nice to be here. We've been hearing about gay conversion practices in Australia and how in some parts of Australia they're banned, in other parts of the country they're not. There are calls for a national ban on gay conversion practices in Australia, but you've worked a lot on this at a global scale and you've called for a global ban. How big of a problem are so-called gay conversion therapies around the world? It is a practice that, according to my research, occurs in every corner of the globe. And it's actually both very expanded and it's extremely damaging to a lot of people all around the world. The reason why I started to research on this issue is because when I began my work as independent expert, I began to hear testimonies of persons who have been subjected to, amongst other, rape, electroshock, pharmacological treatment, deprivation of liberty, and many other practices that uh, damaged enormously their physical and their mental integrity. It is a widespread problem, and it's further compounded by the fact that it's usually practiced in 
a clandestine way, which means that it's very difficult to assess its true extent and also to control and regulate. Is it classified as torture on a global scale? My research led me to the conclusion that practices of conversion are cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment in their very nature. Now, what this means is that they are prohibited under international human rights law. Whether they constitute torture is a question to examine on a case-by-case basis because crossing the threshold into torture requires a particular intensity in the suffering that is inflicted and in the particular intentionality. And so the question for me was to uh, ensure that it's understood that they all fall within prohibited practices under international human rights law. They need to be examined and investigated as being highly suspect of torture. And do the practices differ a lot from country to country or is what you find pretty much similar things happen everywhere? Practices do vary from region to region. I wouldn't say necessarily from country to country. Latin America uh, organizations reported roughly an even division between practices that are based upon psychosocial methods of support, which of course are perverted in their objective and uh, their conduction. Also faith-based and faith-led practices and other type of practices, not necessarily based upon any known or accepted methodology. Whereas in Asia, it was a lot more pervasive to have faith-based and community-led forms of practices. And in countries in the global north, such as the United Kingdom or Australia, they were more typically geared towards uh, psychological practices. So they do vary. And I do believe that this actually has a connection with Uh, Also, the way that communities perceive certain methodologies are are as valid or not. You're listening to Hack. My name's Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Victor Madrigal-Bolos. He's the UN's independent expert on sexual orientation and gender identity. And he's coming to Australia next year for World Pride to talk about his work. Victor, a lot of the time when we talk about rights for LGBTQIA plus people, we think about our own countries like Australia. But because you see things from a much bigger perspective, I'm interested in, in what your opinion is. What is the situation around the world? at the moment. We know there've been massive steps forward in recent years, but have there also been setbacks as well in terms of human rights? It's a very uneven landscape that I found when I started my work, and I think it continues to be so. We need to remember at the outset that there are certain institutional drivers of discrimination and violence that still require being addressed and being dismantled. 69 countries, as of today, still criminalize same-sex intimacy. And then just as many criminalize forms of gender diversity. In 10 of those countries, the books have death penalty as the possible punishment. And five of those countries actually implement the death penalty regularly. So already here you see that there's an enormity of people who are born in countries in which actually there is state-sponsored discrimination and violence through legislation. I was shocked when I visited Georgia, for example, 
to learn that a significant part of the medical officers and health providers still considered homosexuality to be a disease that needed to be cured. Now, we have seen sexual orientation and gender identity included in constitutional protection provisions in countries such as Fiji and South Africa and Ecuador. So it's a very, very landscape. And of course, this is also tainted by retrenchment of certain regressive theories in public discourse including narratives of exclusion of trans persons, which are now, in my view, uh, a way to utilize LGTB lives as a form to galvanize political bases, particularly in electoral processes. Your work is so important and your research is very interesting. Victor Madrigal-Borlos, the UN's independent expert on sexual orientation and gender identity. We're really looking forward to welcoming you to Australia next year for World Pride. And I thank you very much for coming on Hack and speaking with us today. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Hack on Triple J. We've got some messages coming through. Nathan says, if I go out and torture someone, I go to jail. So why are these church people allowed to do it and get away with it? Look, in the lead up to World Pride next year, we're going to bring you so many important stories from this space. There's a lot happening. So make sure you stay tuned. Hack. Wine producers are keen to capitalise on this growth. And there's always, these products have always existed. On Triple J. Hey, do you get around dry July? Because it's here, great time if you're thinking of cutting back on the booze. It can be a struggle for some people though, and we've spoken before on Hack about how it can be really tricky in social settings to say no or to grab a water instead of an alcoholic drink. And maybe if you hear non-alcoholic wine, you're thinking, no thanks, if I wanted sparkling apple juice, I'd just ask for it. But if you are into wine, you actually might be pretty surprised now because some researchers in South Australia reckon they're getting pretty close and soon you won't be able to tell the difference. Do you need some convincing? Well, reporter Evelyn Manfield's been asking around in Australia's wine capital, Adelaide. I'm at a pub in Adelaide's suburbs on Ghana country and I've sat down with 19-year-olds Isaac and Tim to see what they think of non-alcoholic drinks. It tastes like beer, but you don't have the fun effects. That's about all I can say, really. Yeah, I would say, in my opinion, it's not really worth drinking for the taste of alcohol if you're not getting any of the alcohol. At another table, 18-year-old Felix is into the no-booze options. My sister and me, we both have an autoimmune disease, psoriasis, which flares up when you consume alcohol. So it's kind of having a compromise that's like you're having a drink that's more, I guess, mature while not being alcohol and not giving you the side effects that alcohol does. 18-year-old Georgina's tried zero wine too and says she would consider ordering it out at a bar or restaurant. I usually don't order, like, alcoholic drinks anyway, so, yeah. If, it taste, if I knew it tasted good, then, yeah. On Lee Street in Adelaide's CBD, which is a busy bar and restaurant strip, the list of booze-free options at venues is getting longer. Charlotte Martin manages one of the restaurants, Chabot Show. Last year through December, we really noticed people asking for it a lot more. She says customer demand and a trend on social media pushed them to expand their zero-alcohol wine list. They've now got five wines plus mocktails and non-alcoholic beers. So people do call up or they'll email to um, make sure that we do have those options and that actually influences where they will book a venue. Wine producers are keen to capitalise on this growth. 
That's Wes Pearson. He's a research scientist at the Australian Wine and Research Institute in Adelaide. For two years, he's been working on a project to help the wine industry make better non-alcoholic wine that still maintains the flavours and sensations of regular wine. They're doing a lot of sensory work, getting experts to come in and give their professional opinion on the taste and smell and feel. They are a lot better than they used to be. Now that said, there is a long way to go. While no or low alcohol beer has been pretty close in taste to the full strength version for a while now, wine has lagged behind and there's a reason for that. When you're working with wine, you only have, uh, you have very little that you can work with, right? You're working with grapes, fermented grape juice. Sparkling wines, if you look at what those products look like, traditional sparkling wines, they are lower in alcohol, they often have a tiny bit of sugar in them and they've got bubbles in them. So all of those things can add to that, um, that experience of replacing the alcohol. So those are good tools that you can work with. And same with white wine. Wes reckons alcohol-free sparkling and white wines are getting much closer to the alcoholic version, but it's red wine that's tricky because it's typically higher in alcohol. So that would be, that would be the holy grail to make a, a, a Shiraz with no alcohol in it that tastes like a traditional Shiraz. And have you ever wondered why buying alcohol-free wine is the same price as the normal stuff or even a few dollars more? It's because producers have to remove the alcohol, which is another step in the process, making it more expensive. So to keep the cost down, producers often use cheaper grapes. If you're starting with poor materials, you'll end up with a poor finished product. About an hour north of Adelaide on Nadgeree country, the Barossa Valley is renowned for its wine. One of the wineries there is Wolf Blass and they've been making zero wines for about a year now. Their chief supply officer is Karen Petty. A third of our consumers would choose low alcohol wine if they could find it and, and the flavour was at the quality level they expect. So that's really the chase for us to make sure the quality that we're delivering is in line with uh, our consumer's expectation. I asked him why people don't just choose to drink lemonade or apple juice instead. I think it's about the occasion, I really do. Simon Strawn, the chief executive of Drinkwise, says there's other reasons too. Certainly people want to be able to drive and we found around about 28% of people use that as their primary reason. But overall we saw that people wanting to cut back on their alcohol intake, have lower calorie options, uh, lower carb options, making sure they could wake up the next day and feel refreshed. He says alcohol-free options also don't have the stigma that they used to have. It seems unusual, but 18 to 44-year-olds are twice as likely um, to consume zero and low-strength alcohol products um, versus those aged over 45 based on the Drinkwise research. Back at the Research Institute, Wes is expanding his research to now look at what grape varieties will work best for zero wines, or what producers can do on the vineyard to help the alcohol removal process later on, with the hope that soon enough you'll be able to buy a decent glass of red wine without the hangover. Hack on Triple J. Evelyn Manfield there, and a lot of mixed opinions on the text line, but hey... Don't worry, guys. No one's forcing you to drink them. If you don't want to drink the non-alcoholic wines, you don't have to. Hack. All of these marks have different meanings. They have different stories. They identify who I am, who my family is, who my community is. On Triple J. Nightclubs, bars, they've all got different kinds of rules for entry. Some say no to facial tattoos. But what if your tattoos are part of your culture? They're part of your identity? 
because there's been outrage in the Pacifica community after a woman was recently denied entry to a Brisbane club. And we're hearing from heaps of you saying you're sick of being discriminated against at venues. Marion Farr has more. You know, we were just kind of jumping nightclubs based on where the music was. Papuan Australian woman Wyla James was celebrating her partner's birthday in Brisbane's party strip Fortitude Valley early on Sunday morning. And so we went up to Hei Chika, which is a nightclub in Fortitude Valley, and I was the first to line up. The 23-year-old handed the bouncer her ID. And he looks at my licence, then he looks at me and he says, I can't let you in because of your face. Wyla wasn't surprised, but she was upset. I have multiple what we call Reva which is normally referred to as tattoos by the rest of the community. The marks belong to her mother's tribe in Papua New Guinea, and they hold deep cultural significance. Intricate lines decorate Mwala's legs, arms and back. Uh, about four weeks ago, I, I received my most recent marks, my Ade Reva and my Kaku Reva which is on my chin and, and on my forehead. Mwala was refused entry to the nightclub Hey Chika, which bans face and neck tattoos as part of its dress code. Being refused entry somewhere, that has never happened before. Yeah, I mean, I've received discrimination before for my marks, but not to the extent of being refused entry. The 23-year-old posted about the experience on social media, calling out the club. In a private message, Hey Chika apologised, but said it would continue to enforce its blanket ban on neck and face tattoos. Under Queensland's liquor laws, licensed venues have to refuse entry to anyone wearing or displaying items associated with certain criminal organisations. But otherwise, the Liquor Act doesn't regulate dress codes. Mwala reckons a general ban on facial tattoos is discriminatory. Like, it's 2022. It's not okay to just assume that this one blanket rule can cover everybody with a tattoo. It's ridiculous. Hey Chica hasn't responded to the ABC's request for comment. Cultural anthropologist Dr Maya Underwood says in Western cultures like Australia, tattoos carry a lot of baggage. They're symbols predominantly of lower class masculinity and criminality. And even though tattoos are becoming more mainstream, face and neck adornments are particularly stigmatised because I think it can't be covered, so it signifies a, a, a greater commitment to disengagement from the mainstream. But Dr Underwood says in other cultures, tattoos hold quite a different meaning. In Papua New Guinea, they can signify social inclusion, status, personal achievements, and belonging to a particular family or tribe. So they weren't about disengaging from mainstream society, rather they were about fitting in to the wider community. They were expected practices. Dr Underwood says the differing views of tattoos make for a complex problem. There's sort of bound to be this clash. I, I think, I hope that the future is more inclusive. But she says traditional forms of body adornment are making a resurgence. What we're seeing now in Papua New Guinea and in lots of countries, New Zealand, North America, Canada, Polynesia, Philippines, all over the world is um, Indigenous peoples reclaiming these symbols and, and learning about their culture, learning stuff that was denied to them by colonialism. 
For Brisbane-based writer and curator Moila James, it's about reviving an important part of her mother's culture. So all of these marks have different meanings, they have different stories, they identify who I am, who my family is, who my community is, and so there's a lot of pride in wearing those marks. Currently, Queensland's anti-discrimination laws don't actually stop public venues from banning people with tattoos. But those laws are 30 years old, and Moala reckons it's time for a change. If this is an old act and law, it's older than me, so it needs to leave because there's this diverse community that are here that needs to be represented, and current law or policy isn't doing that, so it needs to be changed. Hack on Triple J. Marion Farr with that story. I want to break this down a bit more. So I've got an expert with me, Stephen Blanks. He's from the New South Wales Council for Civil Liberties. Hey, Stephen, thanks very much for coming on Hack. It's my pleasure. We just heard about someone being barred from a nightclub in Brisbane because they had face tattoos, even though they were cultural. Is this the kind of thing that you hear about a lot in your work? We've certainly heard about this sort of uh, situation before. Um, it is, uh, it's interesting to see an actual example of it, but I think there has been some discussion about this over the last uh, little while. And of course, it is a concern. Discrimination, wherever it occurs, however it occurs, is always a concern. And I imagine it's different in different parts of the country, that'd be the case. Each state and territory would have their own laws around this. Well, there are national laws prohibiting uh, discrimination on grounds of race. And um, there is the ability to make complaints about breaches of the national laws to the Australian Human Rights Commission. And then, of course, the states have got top-up laws uh, dealing with discrimination in various areas. But the, there is a fundamental set of federal anti-discrimination laws which are national. And I'm wondering, is this discrimination, like if people have experienced this, does it matter if someone has these tattoos uh, for a cultural reason? For example, if someone's Māori and they and they have these tattoos and they refused entry somewhere, is that different than someone just having tattoos on their face because they like to have them there? It may well be. From a discrimination law point of view, that may be uh, a very significant difference if the tattoos have a basis in racial identity, discrimination for that reason would be unlawful. If the tattoos don't have that characteristic, then it may well be possible to have codes of entry which prevent people with with offending tattoos to enter. Queensland, of course, has got a human rights charter, which New South Wales doesn't have. Um, Queensland, Victoria, the ACT are all human rights jurisdictions where the anti-discrimination laws in those states are supposedly stronger because they have a proper human rights basis. But certainly in New South Wales, and I imagine it's the same in other states, there's been a lot of police agitation against outlaw bikey gangs. And there has been this equation between identifying with an outlaw motorcycle gang and wearing particular clothes or having particular kinds of tattoos. And that message, I think, has led to clubs like this Queensland uh, venue having a policy 
of banning entry to people with facial tattoos without thinking through that a blanket rule like that does have an effect on people who have facial tattoos for other kinds of reasons. All right, Stephen Blanks from the New South Wales Council for Civil Liberties, thank you very much for filling us in. It's my pleasure. Hack on Triple J. Heaps of comments coming through on this one. I want to go to a caller. Joel from South Gold Coast has called in. Joel, what's been your experience? Hi, um, so uh, Berlin Pavilion in early heads uh, will refuse me entry for um, a tattoo on the back of my neck. Even um, trying to get into their restaurant as well, they won't. Um, they won't let me in. But um, I'm a school teacher, so the Department of Education will employ me. But um, I can't uh, eat at a particular restaurant because I have a business. Yeah, it's so weird, Joel. Your line's just dropping out there. But yeah, it is a bizarre one because we're seeing more and more employers kind of um, be more open to this. Like we've seen some airlines recently who've come out and said that staff, um, they're more accepting of tattoos. So definitely um, a big issue and a lot more people messaging in. Someone says, what kind of outdated 1950s bullshit is this not letting people into venues because of tattoos? Another person says, I was denied entry to a strip club due to my hand tattoos and the bouncer made me go and buy a pair of gloves from the 7-Eleven in order to gain entry and a lot more comments as well. Hack on Triple J. Huge thanks to Stephen Blanks from the New South Wales Council for Civil Liberties. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.